Please be seated. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to James chapter 5. You can find the uh, notes in this morning's bulletin or online. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the bulletin. We are fast approaching the end of our study of James. We should be finished in about three weeks in James, plus another two weeks in Psalm 119 to finish that out. And God willing, the plan is to go into the book of Habakkuk for about five weeks. Um, that's the, my plan. We'll see what actually ends up happening. And as we look at this final section in James, he begins to give broad instructions to the community. Like many of the closing sections of epistles in the New Testament, prayer, perseverance, faithfulness is emphasized. I'd like to read verses 13 to 18. They represent one unit, even though it'll take us two weeks to get through it. And then we will dive in considering prayer for all seasons. James 5, 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the varied seasons of life, how to suffer well, how to rejoice well, how to persevere in sickness well, and what you would have us do. I pray that you would teach, sanctify, and instruct us through this so we might see your great care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning, verses 13 to 15, is easily divisible. James asks three questions, is anyone, followed by an imperative response, is anyone among you suffering, is anyone among you sick, is anyone among you cheerful, then he tells them what to do. What he's doing is, remember, we're dealing with the spread out church, the opening greeting, James to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Unlike many of Paul's letters, this is a general epistle, not to one particular church, but to the scattered churches in Asia Minor, the Holy Land, and all the world. And so James is now turning to instructions for differing seasons. As we've already seen in, turn to chapter one, as we've already seen in chapter one, it's a mistake to think that there's a one-size-fits-all exhortation for every believer. Um, You remember in chapter one, Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. If you're particularly low, downtrodden, poor, you should be focusing on the great high calling you have in Christ. Conversely, if you're wealthy and, and possess this world's goods, the counsel to you in verse 10 would be in your humiliation. Guard yourself against pride, self-sufficiency, 
thinking you're more than you are. Two different sets of counsel for two different circumstances in life. The same thing happens here. What should someone in the community doing who is suffering? What should someone do in the community who is in a good mood? What should someone in the community do who is sick? We see the Lord's care and concern for his people. And we see um, the, the goodness and the sufficiency of his word. So let's begin with our first question and answer. Is anyone among you suffering? Now here, James is linking back to what he just said. If you remember in the first um, 10 verses, 11 verses of James chapter 5, he rebuked the rich who are oppressing the poor. And then in verse 7, he turned to those oppressed poor. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts to the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against each other, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an exemplary, that's not a word, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So it's an example of suffering and patience. So he picks up, if you are suffering, now the suffering here can be from any sort of angle, emotional suffering, financial suffering. You could be being robbed by these rich landowners. It could be physical suffering. Um, There are many forms of suffering that can enter our lives. And so James, is anyone among you suffering? Well, what should such a person do? Well, the answer is such a person should pray. How should they pray? Just from looking back in James, I can think of at least three lines along which someone's suffering should pray. And this usually actually is pretty intuitive. In my experience, nothing drives me to my knees more quickly, more consistently than suffering, than anguish. But first, let him pray for perseverance. Let him pray for perseverance. And I get this from James chapter 1. In some senses, as we're closing out the book, I'm going to start trying to recover some of the main themes. And you'll remember, I suggested to you when we began our study of James that the epistle of James is written about faith, relying on the wisdom of God, working itself out in good works through suffering in the spheres of the tongue and the world and wealth. And right at the beginning of the book, we get this instruction, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now we're going to get to praying that God might remove the trial, but the first instruction James gives in his epistle, and so the first thing I would suggest someone suffering should be praying for is perseverance. Lord, grow in me an endurance, a steadfastness. Because we remember, persevering in trial has two great results in chapter 1. The first, it matures you. We see that right here. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, if you let it have its full effect, you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how do we mature as Christians? By and large, through suffering. So if suffering has entered your life, I would encourage you to pray that it not go to waste, but that the Lord might use it to mature you. That's James's first instruction. There's a second 
good fruit of perseverance. And we see that in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So, it's a certainty that testings and trials and suffering will enter our life in seasons. And what is important is that we respond to those trials, to those sufferings, um, by viewing them as a cause for good and viewing them as a means of maturing us and viewing them as a means to being tested and being approved. And so if you're suffering... um, James's first instruction is that we regard it rightly and that we persevere. So let him pray for perseverance. Point B, um, right on the heels of that, is praying for perspective. To view them rightly. To view the trials rightly. James, in his epistle, has dealt with this repeatedly. Not only does he give the positive perspective, these trials, these sufferings are, are... Tools that God uses to grow you, to prove, to test your faith. But he also considers wrong ways of responding. Wrong ways. We see right after the verse I just read in chapter 1, that there's a temptation to blame God, to grumble against God in suffering. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. We saw just a few verses ago in chapter 5 that in the midst of the body suffering, there was a warning, verse 9, do not grumble against each other, my brothers. When you've got it tough and someone has it easier, it's, it's easy to become envious, jealous, embittered. Why do I have to go through this hard trial? Why don't they? And so if you're, if you're suffering James has already warned against and given help for. We got to be thinking about our trials rightly. We got to recognize the dangers of thinking wrongly. The other reason we would need to pray for the right perspective is lest you pray selfishly. Go to chapter 4. Verse 3 You ask, you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you, if you remember all the times in, in Psalm 119, the psalmist has asked for help, for strength. He's always linking it back to that I might keep your word, that I might serve you. It's entirely possible to pray for ease that I might enjoy myself, that I might finally go on that vacation I have planned, that I might do the things I want to do. And so it is entirely possible to pray that a trial go away, for suffering to leave, for purely fleshly reasons. So if you're suffering, pray, but don't just pray what we all pray. It's natural to pray for the suffering to go away. And there's nothing wrong with that. As Christians, as people instructed by the book of James, we also need to recognize this, while this trial exists, it's an opportunity for me to grow and mature. It's also an opportunity for me to grumble and blame God. It's an opportunity for God to refine me, get my desires right and in order. Or it's an opportunity for me to long for this world. So pray for perspective rather than blaming God and grumbling against each other, rather than praying selfishly. And finally, let him pray for preservation. 
James chapter 5 has already encouraged the brothers in the suffering under the rich. The judge is at the door. This, this will be made right. It will end soon. And there is nothing wrong with praying that God might take away a trial, suffering, affliction. Nothing wrong at all. I just bring it in last because while the trial is here, and considering how James starts his epistle, how we think about it, how we interact with it, how we view it is critical. Pray for preservation. We saw in 7 through 11, be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. So when you're suffering, by all means, pray that God might take it away from you. The Apostle Paul had a affliction, a, a, a thorn in his flesh. He asked three times that the Lord might take it away. Now the answer he got was, no, I'm perfecting my power in your weakness which Paul then receives because he also had the right perspective about it. Um, Our sufferings can reveal what we worship, what we value. So the first instance in life that James addresses is those in the body who are suffering. They ought to pray. And one of the things we can do with them is pray with them. When someone's faith is weak, we can come alongside them. I come over and visit and pray with someone. That's a good and great ministry that you can be part of. So that's the first case, suffering. The second, is anyone among you cheerful? Now we're going to the other extreme. The ESV translates it as cheerful, and I think that's right. The idea is not whether or not you're in a tough place or not. It's, it's the emotional. You're in a good attitude. You're, you're happy. You're rejoicing. What are you to do? And you, you wouldn't necessarily think that such a person needs instruction. It's the, the sick who need help. It's the suffering who need help. But... In my experience, being blessed is a more sometimes dangerous place to be than being afflicted. Affliction tends to sanctify. We tend to let go of those things we're holding on to, and we get forced down to our knees, and we recognize that we can only find help and solace in the Lord. When things are going well, there's great temptation to forget the Lord. To forget the Lord. Just think about those who are wealthy enough to plan business trips. Come now, you say today or tomorrow, we're going to go here or there. Well, James identifies that as boasting, self-confidence, and pride. And it's subtle. It's not readily obvious. It's just in how they forgot to take account of God. So there is instructions for those who are cheerful, for those who are happy. And it is, let him sing praise. Let him sing Praise. This is a mark, by the way, of being filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what happens when you're filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. God has given us over 150 songs in Scripture because he, get this, likes us singing to him. It pleases him. And I talk to some people who insist they have terrible voices. They don't like to sing. It's not about you. God intends for his people to sing. And when he's blessed you and you're happy, why don't you offer thanks to him and sing as terribly and out of key as you want in your car? (laughs) Crank up the stereo, sing along with some songs. But this is the type of instruction that God would have us do, directing our joy, directing our thanks back to him. Because we will direct it somewhere. We will direct it somewhere. Let him sing praise. 
Let him take care to remember the Lord. Let him take care to remember the Lord. Turn to Deuteronomy 6. This is a repeating theme in Scripture. And again, I think it's interesting that James considers the cheerful. We wouldn't be thinking if we're getting ministry teams together to minister to people. Well, what are we going to do for the happy? They're so busy usually putting out fires. But James is thinking not just of those suffering, but those who are cheerful and happy. And it's because there's a real danger when you're happy, when you're content to forget the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6, well-known passage. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to give them, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name shall you swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Why are they to nonstop be talking about the Lord, binding him? his word on their hands, his frontlets on their doorposts, because God is going to give them such a blessed land. They're not going to have to go in and build their cities. They're not going to have to go in and dig their wells. They're not going to go in and plant their vineyards. They're going to be there. They're going to take possession of a cultivated land. And the temptation is going to be, with all that blessing, with all those good earthly goods, that they might forget him. I think in a similar vein, James is giving this instruction because <clears throat> in times of plenty, we can just become forgetful. We can just drift off and get distracted, not, not into overt, obvious wickedness, but just into a sort of practical atheism. We saw that at the end of chapter 4, remember? Come now, verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow we should go into such and such a town, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, all they've said is just their plans. They haven't said, we're going to go worship other gods. They haven't said, we're going to go um, do nefarious wickedness. They just made plans, but they made plans like atheists. They made plans like there wasn't a living God who might mess up their plans. And so James rebukes them, yet you do not know that what your life will bring, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So one of the ways to remember that there is a living God 
is to sing praise to him, to be thankful to him. When we sing praise to him, when we sing his word to him, we are confessing the source of the blessing. We're reminding ourselves where the good thing came from. Remember chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow due to change. Every good thing you have comes from the Father. And the way God orders things is we get the blessings and he gets the praise. We get the grace and the help. He gets the glory. So if the Lord has given you help and he's given you blessings, don't withhold the grace. I mean, don't withhold the glory and the praise. We should be a singing people. We should be a thankful people. And this should characterize our lives. If you're happy and blessed, sing, sing praise to God. As out of tune and as poorly as you may sing, do it because it pleases your father. It pleases your father. One final point I want to draw is this. Joy and sorrow can coexist in the body. Joy and sorrow can, co- joy and sorrow can coexist in the body. And all I mean to say is this. There can be a temptation sometimes when somebody has had a great blessing in the body or somebody has had a great tragedy to think that the alternative may somehow conflict. Someone's just suffered a terrible loss. Should I not share my praise that God has given us a new job? Somebody's lost a child in miscarriage. Does my pregnancy detract from that? They don't war with each other. James assumes both happiness and cheerfulness and anguish and suffering are coexisting in the body. Neither one detracts from the other. God intends for you to express your grief and your joy and not to feel constrained by anyone else. This is healthy for a body. Two two passages that illustrate this point. Romans 12, 15 to 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In the same day, you may be rejoicing with one brother or sister in their blessing and in their joy and weeping with another over their sorrow and their loss. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Actually, um, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. For God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And and nothing, I I just feel terrible when people are going through suffering, going through grief. And I've seen this before, and they're hesitant to share it because some good thing has happened to somebody else, and they don't want to, don't feel that way. The body will be constantly rejoicing and grieving simultaneously. It's, it's, It's part of a healthy organism in the church. And James gives counsel to both to vocalize their experience, one in prayer, one in song. Which brings us then to the third case, and the most difficult, and probably the most difficult passage in James. Um, when he asks, Is anyone among you sick? Let's read verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And this is a passage that has been frequently cited and used by health and prosperity teachers, 
charismatic ministries. And let's face it, on the surface, there appears to be an unqualified promise for healing. But I I think we'll find that is not exactly what's going on. Let's begin working through it, see if we can make sense of this. Uh, Consequently, because it's challenging and because there is no New Testament corollary to this, this is unique, this practice of anointing with oil, calling the elders. Um, It's also something we can tend to to not participate in, but God's given it to us to receive as a good thing. So let's work through it piece by piece. Is anyone among you sick? Well, what should he do? Let him call for the elders of the church. And here we see, even from the earliest stages, James probably being the earliest written New Testament document in the Bible, that there are already elders in place in the church this, this level of ecclesiology is present, even as he refers to their gathering in chapter 2 as their synagogue. They're a church, and they have elders, plural. Plurality of elders is, is the biblical model. And I want to just pause and make one point. I know we've made this before. But when you see the term elder, there's, there's three terms for what I believe is the same office in the New Testament. And so your blanks here are elders equal overseers, equal pastors. Elders, overseers, and pastors refer to the same position in the church. Now let me, let me show you that in Acts chapter 20. Turn, turn over there briefly. I think this is an important point to make. Within the elders, Timothy knows of elders who labor, who take particular time in word and in doctrine. And so I think we can get from that some validity to the notion of full-time or vocational elders and non-vocational elders, but we're, we're all doing the same thing. It's not that I'm a pastor and Jason is an elder. I'm an elder, overseer, pastor, and so is Jason, and so is Al, and so are the rest of the elders. Let me show this to you. Acts chapter 20. Now, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you Yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells him he's going to Jerusalem and be arrested. Jump ahead. Um, down to um, verse 28. And remember, he's talking to the elders, plural, of the church, singular, at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had elders. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or presbyters. When you hear of Presbyterian church, they, they grab that term, overseer, presbyter. And what, what, what do the elders, these overseers, do? They care for the flock, which is shepherding. Um, so we see from Acts 20, those three terms coming together. The same thing happens. I can just read to you 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is being revealed, to shepherd the flock of God. What do elders do? They shepherd the flock. They're pastors. And they exercise oversight. They're overseers. Elders shepherd and oversee. Okay. I just think it's cool that 
This isn't some innovation that sprung up years and decades later. From the earliest instances of the church in the New Testament, we see these structures in place. The church is being overseen by elders. So the sick person is to call for the elders. Notice they take the initiative. It's on them. Now, presumably, they're too sick to go to the elders. So this is some level of severe sickness. This isn't a sniffle. This is something severe. Um, At least the example James is using is. So he calls for the elders of the church. And then we have a second imperative. Let them pray over him. Now, over him again could suggest extreme sickness and that he's on a bed. It also could simply mean he's sitting and they're praying over him, laying on hands. Either is possible. But they pray over him. So here's a third instance of prayer. We've seen the the suffering person pray. We've seen the cheerful person singing psalms, which is, I think, a form of prayer. And here, the sick person is calling for the elders, and they're praying over him. And then we get this um, explaining verse, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And my goodness, there are a lot of differing views on what this anointing with oil is. What's going on here? The the views fall into three categories. And this is part of the reason I think why sometimes we just stay away from this passage because it looks a little strange. One view is that the oil being anointed is medicinal. This is the medicine of the day. We get such an idea from Luke 10.34 where one of the things the Good Samaritan does to the man bloodied and beaten on the side of the road is he puts oil on his wounds. Um, It's possible. It's possible. I think it's unlikely When you go to the qualifications of elders, skill with medicine isn't one of the qualifications required. And if the view here were primarily to to medicinally help, call for doctors. There are doctors in that day. Luke, the beloved physician. So the ancient world had doctors. But he's calling for the elders. And biblically, even though there was that one example in Luke, the notion of anointing has strong significance. Strong significance. So I don't think it's medicinal. The second view is sacramental. Um, I wouldn't even mention this if the Roman Catholic Church didn't take this and run with it and come up with the uh, extreme unction and last rites. And the view here being that the, the oil is doing things, that the oil is, is empowered, and it's got to be blessed by the right bishop, and then the oil pours out God's grace. I don't think there's anything of that in view here either. Rather, I think the oil really applied, is implied for symbolic purpose, similar to baptism, similar to the Lord's Supper. So your blank here be a symbolic act. So there is oil being poured, clearly, but I think it's done symbolically. From, from the Old Testament, anointing had a clear picture of being consecrated, separated by the Lord for his purposes. So in Exodus 28, 41... You shall put them, these clothes, on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Exodus forty fifteen, Talking to the priests again. Anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. Their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So I think the idea is something like this. This sick person who's called the elders, the elders come and they they anoint him as a way of symbolizing you are being set apart for prayer, for focus, for ministry. You are the Lord's. 
to potentially encourage him, and to potentially make it clear he is being received and accepted. We're going to look in just a moment that there's the possibility that sin may be connected with his sickness. Perhaps the body may wonder. I mean, we know in Jesus' day, oftentimes when someone was sick, well, what did they do? And so the elders, rather than rejecting this faithless person, anoint him, set him apart for special prayer and consideration in this symbolic act. And they do it in the name of the Lord. Um, and I believe the name of the Lord refers to the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Just, just look back to chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And we know, and those of you in Dave Lample's class, when the Lord is coming, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. So I think could possibly be the Father here, but I do believe it's in the name of Jesus. This is also, by the way, how those healed in the Gospels, or at least in one instance, Acts, um, your reference there is Acts 6, verse 13, were anointed as well, where it says, um, Acts, do I not have that reference? I don't have that reference. No, there it is, Mark 6, 13, not Acts. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who are sick, and healed them. And again, it's not that the oil has any magical properties any more than Jesus' spittle or the mud he made. These are, these are symbolic signs to indicate what is going on um, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And now we get to the, the tricky part. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now the prayer of faith, that phrase is tricky because it has no New Testament counterpart. Both the word for prayer is unusual and the expression itself, the prayer of faith. But let's draw what observations we can. First off, it's the faith of the elders, not the sick person. I want to make that point because in many healing ministries today, when healing doesn't happen, it's blamed on the lack of faith of the individual, right? So if the healing does happen, and in my experience, the healings are usually unverifiable things. The mysterious back pain is mysteriously gone. But what frequently happens is when the healing doesn't happen, it's blamed on the lack of faith of the individual. But the individual here who's sick, his imperative verb is to summon the elders. The elders then pray over him, and it's the prayer of faith. So if you were to use that type of theology, if anyone has a lack of faith, it would be the elders here. I, I don't think this is an unconditional promise, but if you do encounter someone from that vantage point that believes that if you have enough faith, you can be healed of anything, point out to them here, it's the faith of the elders that's, that's being hit upon here. And their prayer, their prayer, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, the verb translated save here can mean restore, heal, deliver, your blanks, restore and heal. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. But lest you think now it's the power of the elders, maybe you're tempted to think, okay, God has apparently entrusted elders with healing power. He makes again the point further, the Lord will raise him up. So when this happens, when the sick person summons the elders, and they pray over him and anoint him with oil, and when the Lord, when he is raised up and healed, it becomes explicitly clear it is not their power at work. It is not their power at work. This is the same that we see in Acts 3.16, when Peter 
heals a crippled man. He insists, by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So what we're not dealing with here are people with the gift of healing. We know in 1 Corinthians that some in the early church were given gifts of healing. That's not what's going on here. These are just the elders. Nor is it a particular power or authority of elders. The sick person's called the elders. The elders anoint him with oil. They pray over him. And when that person is healed and raised up, it's healed and raised up in the power of God. I've actually participated in this once. Um, And the Lord granted an extension of life, but the Lord ultimately did not heal in a complete and perfect sense. And I do not believe the Lord has been unfaithful. So let's move on to the last phrase. See if we can make some sense of this with what little time we have left. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So the first thing we can get from this is that the sick man has confessed his sins. And I believe to the elders. The the reason why I say that is we're talking in the third person. He's not saying second person to you. If you are sick, your sins will be... He's saying their sins. It's not just the person who's sick that's being told their sins are forgiven, but the community. So if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven. There's a clear implication of confession, and that is drawn forward even more in the verse we'll look at next week in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. So let's, let's look at this. First point, not all sickness is the result of sin. We've got to start there. Not all sickness is the result of sin. We know in the scriptures that was a default assumption for many. That was the assumption of Job's friends. That was the assumption of the disciples. In John chapter 9, this is made explicitly clear. As they passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So their logic, this bad thing happened, somebody sinned. We suppose it would make sense that God might be punishing the parents for their sin and giving them a blind child. Or perhaps in the utero, the child sinned. Who sinned, Lord? Jesus answers instructive. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind, not because of his own sin or his parents' sin, but because God intended, however many years later he encounters Jesus, to glorify himself through Jesus demonstrating his power and compassion on him. So the first point to get, Job's counselors are not right. The disciples at this point are not right. Not all sickness and illness is the result of personal sin. However, next point three, It's clear that some illnesses are the Lord's discipline. We don't want to so strongly respond from that first point that we never consider that. Paul is explicit on this point. 1 Corinthians 11. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Many in the Corinthian church were sick, ill, and some had died Because they were blaspheming, taking lightly the Lord's table. That's that's what Paul says. 
And so we've, we've got to live within both of these boundaries. We've got to avoid assuming all sickness is the result of sin. But we also have to avoid the danger of so not wanting to do that, that we never go there. We never go there. The Bible's clear. And you can read through the Psalm. Psalm 32, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away. It can happen. It can absolutely happen. And if you look even in the next verses, what we're going to look at next week, it's, it's clear. James is assuming frequently it happens. Look, look at verse 16 and 7. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you want to be healed? Confess your sins and pray for each other. Which indicates James certainly thinks in some cases in the scattered body. There is sickness that's not being healed precisely because people aren't confessing sins. Not always. Certainly not always. It is a category we have to have. It is a category that we're given here. Um, Now, point four. I believe that such sickness is likely in view here. I believe that such sickness is likely in view here. Why do I say that? Because I do not believe James is making an unqualified promise of healing that will always happen if you just call for the elders. And I won't even argue from experience to make that point. I'll argue from the New Testament. We know from the New Testament that not every faithful believer was healed. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul writes to Timothy saying that he left Erastus in Corinth. No, I left Trometheus, who was ill, at Miletus. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? Why didn't you call for the elders to pray over him? Because apparently this is not... An unqualified promise. We know that Timothy had frequent medical issues. This is Paul's language. He tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy was Paul's faithful friend. The letters Paul writes to Timothy do not include rebukes for sin. Paul was faithful. Timothy was faithful. And yet Timothy had frequent ailments. So we know from within the New Testament, there is not an unqualified promise of healing. So if that's the case, and then our own experience bears this out, as I said, the one time I was involved in doing this, the Lord answered our prayer by greatly extending life long, long beyond the the expected um, time the doctors had predicted. But there was not an ultimate healing physically, um, is either tied up in one of two things. It's either tied up in that prayer of faith being some unusual thing. That's possible. But what I think more likely, because of the direction the text goes, is James has in view primarily those instances where the sickness, the illness is brought on because of sin. That's certainly where he goes in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. So what does this mean practically? My advice to you would be, in my regular practice, when I get sick, especially when it comes out of nowhere, the first place I go is, Lord, might you be disciplining me? Might there be something in my life that you're trying to get my attention over? Now, my reason for that is not because I just assume sickness equals sin. The reason for that is because if that's the case, I'd like to get this over with as quickly as possible. If you are trying to get my attention, if you are trying to bring me to repentance, I don't want to wait three weeks. Let's repent today. Let's confess today. The Psalms give us example 
of prayer is praying that God would search our hearts. Psalm 19, Psalm 139, test me, search my heart, show me if there's any wicked way in me. Paul says just because his conscience doesn't condemn him, he's not thereby acquitted. And so I'll spend some time, a few hours in prayer, focusing on that. And if the Lord doesn't bring to mind clearly sin, corruption in my life, I move on. I don't camp out and stay there. But that's usually the first place I start. Simply because why make that your second or third stop? And if that is what you think is the case, then confess your sins and consider calling the elders. It's it's a difficult passage. We know from the New Testament it's not an unconditional promise. But what we do know is that the elders should be involved in ministry over the sick. We do know that you should feel free to call on the elders in your sickness and your weakness. And we do know that at least at times it's appropriate to be confessing our sins to leadership. Now, of course, Roman Catholicism gets the priestly confessor's box. We're going to see in the next verse, this is something the whole body is doing with each other. It's not a particularly pastoral function. But it's not excluded from pastoral function either. So, as we prepare for our final song, and we'll pick this up next week, God has instructions for you in your life wherever you are. Are you suffering? Be in prayer. Are you happy and blessed? Give praise to God in song. Are you sick? Take some thought. Could this be God's discipline? Some thought to that. And involve others. Get get the elders. Call in those in the church to pray for you. Um, Our closing song this morning deals with the struggles and trials in God in our life. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer and we'll close in song. Lord God, I'm thankful that you have not left us alone. I'm thankful that you have not given us a one-size-fits-all instruction, but that your word leads us wherever we are in life. It leads us in sorrow. It leads us in joy. It leads us in health. It leads us in affliction and disease. You have given us instructions in your word. I pray now, Lord, that we would internalize them, that we would receive them, that we would obey them. In Jesus' name, amen.